It is good to be back with you. Uh, it was a joy last Sunday for our family to uh, worship alongside our brothers and sisters at the Cross Church in Pensacola, Florida, while we were on vacation. But it is always a much, much sweeter and deeper joy to be with you, our family, where we are known and loved. So it's good to be back with you. I'm going to invite you again to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, would you please take a moment now and look near one of the pew racks or chair racks underneath you or around you and grab a Bible. Uh, the passage we're looking at today is a lengthy passage, and we're not going to read every verse in Matthew 23 again. We've all read it together. Uh, so it's going to help you immensely if you open up a Bible, put it on your lap, and follow along as we walk through the text together. You'll find it on pages 984 and 985 in one of those black Bibles. Uh, while you're turning there, consider this. Sometimes what appears to be vicious and cruel is actually an incredible gift of saving grace. Just ask a man named David Lindsay. David had just settled down for a nap on his couch one particular afternoon when he was awoken by a blood-curdling scream. Now, that's frustrating and frightening enough to be awoken in that manner, but was, what was even more disturbing was the words that David heard being screamed by his wife. David, the puppy is chewing your toe. It's frightening words to be woken up to. And David looked down to see a, a bloody mess and his seven-month-old bulldog puppy gnawing away. The, the damage done to David's toe was so severe, he was forced to remain in a hospital for nine days while multiple doctors worked long and hard to ensure that the infection didn't spread into his bones. How vicious and cruel does a puppy have to be to turn someone's toe into a Tootsie Pop? That was supposed to be funny, but never mind. Now, I'm sure that David and his wife seriously considered rehoming that dog after that incident. But all of that changed when the doctors discovered why David was able to sleep through that ordeal. You see, what happened was David, after careful examination, the doctors learned that David had lost all feeling in his toes because he had two blocked arteries in his leg. If that issue hadn't been discovered and treated, David was in serious danger of a leg amputation or worse. Thanks to his bulldog, Harley, David lost his toe but also, thanks to Harley, his leg, and possibly even his life was saved. Because sometimes something that appears vicious and cruel is actually a gift of saving grace. Now, in Matthew chapter 23, the chapter we're looking at this morning, there is no place in Scripture where Jesus looks more like a vicious and cruel bulldog than this chapter. 
Uh, remember the context of where we are in the life and ministry of Jesus. It is Tuesday of the very week in which he will be crucified. A few days from this account, he is going to be hanging on a cross. And he is in the middle of an escalating conflict with the religious leaders. We watched last week as uh, he was confronted by them with a series of questions. And Jesus was able to respond to each and every one of their questions. They tried to trap Jesus. And this morning, Jesus has the last word. And in this last and final word to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, he appears vicious and cruel, even like a bulldog. Just listen to some of the names that he calls the Pharisees. By the way, children, don't write these down because we shouldn't use these names with each other. But this is what Jesus says. He calls them hypocrites, children of hell, blind guides, fools, dirty dishes, whitewashed tombs, serpents, brood of vipers, and murderers. Now, why does Jesus talk like that to these Pharisees? What happened to gentle and lowly Jesus, meek and mild Jesus, softly and tenderly Jesus? Is Jesus kind of like something my mom used to say to me when I was a little kid? I've had it up to here. Is he kind of like that with the Pharisees? I've had enough. I can't take any more of you. Has he finally reached the end of his rope? Or is there something else going on here? The big idea that I want you to notice from today's sermon is that Jesus' harshest words are actually an incredible gift of saving grace that should lead us to careful examination. We could say that Jesus' words to the Pharisees are kind of like a mirror. He's holding up a mirror, and he's showing this group of religious leaders, this is what you really look like. And what they're going to see is going to absolutely devastate their egos. And yet, if they will but carefully listen and examine themselves, they can be rescued. The fact that the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Matthew to record these words for us in the Gospel of Matthew means that these words are not only for the Pharisees of Jesus' day. These words are also for us. This is perhaps the sermon, the text for religious people, church-going people. And in this text, we have the sovereign, gracious, holy Son of God holding up to us a mirror, and if we will but look into it and examine ourselves, we too can be rescued. If you're in this room this morning, and you're not a believer in Jesus, you're not a Christian, perhaps for you... The greatest obstacle to Christianity is the fact that the church is filled with so many hypocrites, and that certainly is true. And yet, I would remind you, dear friend, that what the church has that the world does not is a standard that actually calls out our hypocrisy. And so, yes, there is hypocrisy, shades of hypocrisy in the church among all of us, even as followers of Jesus. 
And yet, God uses his word to expose our hypocrisy. My prayer for you, dear friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus, is that you would hear the words of Jesus, you would notice the hypocrisy in your own life, and you would run to Jesus for rescue. And to the Christians in this room, my prayer for us, for all of us, is that we would seriously listen and lean in to this moment because this is the sermon that Jesus would deliver to the most religious people. This is a sermon for us. May we look into this mirror, the mirror of Jesus' word, examine our own hearts so that we too can uproot the hypocrisy in our lives. With God's help, I want us to ask eight self-examination questions as we walk through our text together. Eight self-examination questions as you look into this mirror of Jesus' word to examine where you too, even as a follower of Jesus, might be like the Pharisees. Question number one, Am I preaching and practicing the truth? Am I preaching and practicing the truth? In verses 1 to 4, Jesus begins by warning the crowd and his disciples that the scribes and the Pharisees do not practice or preach the truth. Now, of course, the scribes and the Pharisees were the religious leader uh, the religious leaders in Jesus' day. And Jesus says in verse 2 that they sit on Moses' seat. Now, that doesn't mean that some ancient archaeologist found Moses' lazy boy somewhere and the, they sit on his chair. It, it would mean something like saying you preached in Charles Spurgeon's pulpit or Billy Graham's pulpit. Okay? So they're saying, Jesus is saying, they, they have this seat of authority. They have this position of authority to teach the law of God. Teaching God's Word, of course, is good, but these religious leaders are not practicing what they preach. They take the law of Moses, which was already a burden that God's people couldn't carry, and they add to it. It would be like seeing someone with a heavy backpack on their shoulders struggling under the weight and say, hey, would you carry mine too? That's what the Pharisees did. If, if you've been with us as we've walked through Matthew's gospel together, you might remember that back in Matthew 15, these same religious leaders were angry with Jesus' disciples about hand washing. You might remember that from Matthew 15. Uh, the Exodus chapter 30 does mention briefly a little line about priests washing their hands before a sacrifice, but the Pharisees came along and wrote nearly 4,000 words about how to wash your hands correctly. And just for context, 4,000 words is about the length of my sermon manuscript today. So imagine however long I'm going to go, that someone talking to you for that long about how to wash your hands correctly. There was instructions about how to wash your wrists and what the water could be in and what you, what you had to do with the vessel after you were done washing your hands. What they did is they took the law of God, which was already heavy, and they added to it. Jesus says they've, in verse 4, they've tied up heavy burdens that are hard to bear. Well, if that's what the Pharisees were doing... Why does Jesus say in verse 3 
Observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. Some have argued that the Pharisees' teaching was right. The only problem was that the Pharisees didn't practice what they preach. Now, the Pharisees certainly did have a problem with not practicing what they preached. But I'm going to suggest to you that that wasn't their only problem. I believe, if you look carefully at Matthew 23, that Jesus has serious problems with the Pharisees' teaching. For example, in verse 15, Jesus says that those who follow their teaching will become children of hell. In verse 16, Jesus calls the Pharisees blind guides. They're leading people by their teaching, and Jesus says they're leading them into pits. In verses 17 to 22, Jesus completely debunks some of their teaching, which we'll look at in a little bit. So why does Jesus say, do what they say? Why does he say that in verse 3? I agree with the many scholars who believe that Jesus is actually being sarcastic in verse 3. Now, for some of us, it's probably hard to think about Jesus being sarcastic. But I think if you look at the context, that's exactly what he's doing. Jesus is saying something like this, go ahead, go ahead and do what the Pharisees teach if you want the door of heaven to slam in your face or if you want to become a child of hell. Follow them if that's what you want. Now, those words might seem harsh, but they are a gift of grace if we will but carefully examine ourselves in this mirror. So what about you? What message are you preaching? When you talk about Jesus and the Scriptures, are you speaking the truth? Or have you added to the Word of God or taken away from it? And are you practicing what you preach, Christian? Do you say one thing on Sunday mornings but live differently the rest of the week? Do you say that you believe that sinners apart from Jesus will go to hell, but you never talk to sinners about Jesus? Do you say you believe the Bible, but ignore what it teaches about how we raise our children? Do you say you love your spouse, and then treat him or her as if they exist to fulfill your needs? Well, let me be careful here, Christian. I'm not saying that any of us is going to perfectly preach and practice correctly. But here's what I want us to look at. Not perfection, but direction. What's the direction of your life? Are you moving towards greater faithfulness to God's Word in what you say and in what you do? Or are you moving away from that? Would you carefully examine what you practice and what you preach? There's a second question we need to ask ourselves this morning, and that's this. Am I interested in looking holy or being holy? Am I interested in looking holy or being holy? In verses 5 to 12, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for being more interested in looking holy and righteous and good than actually being holy. Notice in verse 5, he says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. 
And then he gives several examples. Uh, so, for example, in verse 5, he talks about broad phylacteries and long fringes. What is that all about? We should have a picture of it on the screen for you. A phylactery is a small box worn on the forehead or the arm. Uh, this was worn in, as an attempt to obey Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8. If you jot it down, you can read it this afternoon. Deuteronomy 6, verse 8, God tells his people to bind his word on their heads and on their hearts. So the, the idea was, think about my word. Let it affect how you behave. Let it affect your mind and your hands. And the Pharisees came along and they said, no, what we really need to do is actually get a box, put some mini scrolls in it, and strap it to our heads. And they still do that today. And what the Pharisees did, the, the really, really religious Pharisees, is they just got bigger boxes. It's kind of funny. The bigger the box means the more of God's word I have inside of it. Look how holy I am. And the fringes are those, those tassels on the end of that prayer shawl, and it was a, a sign of being a prayerful person. And Jesus is saying, listen, you guys want to look really religious? You've got my word strapped to your head, but it's actually not in your mind, and it's not in your heart. You're interested, you're more interested in looking holy than being holy. In verse 6, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for angling for the best seats in any sort of public gathering. In verse 7, he rebukes them for loving the loud, respected public greetings they receive in the marketplaces. In verses 8 through 11, he rebukes them for their obsession with fancy titles. And then Jesus says in verse 12, if you want to exalt yourself, you're going to be humiliated. And if you really want to be exalted, you need to humble yourself. Now, once again, Jesus' words in this section appear harsh, but they're a gift of grace if we will but examine ourselves here. So let me ask you, Brother, sister, friend, are you more interested in being holy or looking holy? Are you here to be seen or to serve? Parents, are you more interested in your children appearing well-behaved or actually loving Jesus? Husbands and wives, are you more interested in your marriage looking nice and loving and well together? Or are you actually fighting for the health of your marriage? Do you spend more time preparing your body for worship gatherings or preparing your heart? Do you love it when people address you with special titles like pastor, elder, deacon, teacher? Do you love being recognized when you walk into a room or onto the stage? Brother, sister, friend, would you carefully examine yourself to see if you're more concerned with looking holy or being holy? It's the third question we need to ask ourselves, and that is, am I hindering or helping others? 
Am I hindering or helping others? Beginning in verse 13, Jesus transitions from talking about the Pharisees to talking to them. So you can imagine, first he's talking to the crowd and his disciples about the Pharisees, and perhaps they hear about it, so a a crowd of them comes, or maybe they're already there, and then Jesus begins to directly speak to them. And in this section, along the way, Jesus will say the phrase, woe to you, Pharisees, seven times. That word woe uh, in the original language is used to express grief, despair, sorrow, pain, damnation, destruction. Jesus is calling out judgment on the Pharisees. In the first two woes, we see the Pharisees hindering other people from following Jesus. In verse 13, the Pharisees are hindering people by misleading them about Jesus. As the experts of the law, the Pharisees should have recognized the Messiah when they saw him. They should have known. You go all the way back to the beginning of Matthew. When they heard about the star from the wise men, they should have gone to Bethlehem to worship him, but they didn't. They should have known this was him. But instead of worshiping Jesus themselves, what did they do? They kept other people from worshiping Jesus. They shut the door of heaven in people's faces. They didn't enter themselves, they didn't follow Jesus themselves, and they didn't allow other people to follow him. So let me ask you, dear brother, sister, friend, are you misleading people about Jesus? Most of us would probably not do it in such a blatant way as what the Pharisees did. We do it in subtle ways. If we tell people that Jesus doesn't care how they live, we're misleading them about Jesus. If we tell people that Jesus will affirm and accept anyone and everyone just how they are, we're misleading them about Jesus. If we tell people they have to clean themselves up to become Christians, we're misleading them about Jesus. If we tell people that following Jesus means a life of prosperity, we're misleading them about Jesus. If we tell people the right things about Jesus, but we don't actually follow him ourselves, we're misleading them about Jesus. And if we don't tell anyone anything about Jesus, we're also misleading them about Jesus, aren't we? Giving them the impression that Jesus doesn't care about those people. So let me ask you again, brother, sister, friend, what about you? Are you teaching people the truth about Jesus? Or are you hindering them Or another question, what are you doing to grow in your understanding about the person and work of Jesus so that you can teach people rightly? One of the things you want to do as a church, our great commission as the local church, Jesus says to teach them all that I have commanded you in Matthew 28. So we have discipleship groups and fellowship groups and Bible studies and Sunday school classes, all with the aim of helping to teach you how to follow Jesus. Are you taking advantage of those opportunities, Christian? Verse 15, in the second woe, the Pharisees are hindering people 
by making disciples of themselves. A proselyte is a convert, it's a disciple. The, the Pharisees, Jesus says, are willing to travel land and sea. They're, they're willing to go anywhere and everywhere to make a disciple. Now that sounds good, but what's the problem? They're making disciples of themselves, not of Jesus, not of God, but of them. And when they do so, their disciples are twice a child of hell, Jesus says. So, this temptation to make self-disciples exists for everyone who teaches God's Word. Whether you're a mom teaching your kids about Jesus, or dad leading your children in family worship, whether you're leading a discipleship group, or a Bible study, or a Sunday school class, or preaching a Sunday morning sermon, there is a temptation that we must recognize of becoming so enamored with the praise that we receive for telling people about Jesus that we stop pointing people to Jesus and we start pointing people to us. So what about you? If you teach God's Word, are you seeking to make disciples of Jesus or yourself? If you don't teach God's Word, are you seeking to make sure that those who do teach God's Word are actually teaching it rightly? Are you like the Bereans in Acts 17 who search the Scriptures daily after hearing the Apostle Paul to make sure that what he said was actually true? Would you carefully examine yourself to see if you're hindering or helping others to follow Jesus? Fourth question we need to ask ourselves is this. Am I the exception to the rule? Am I the exception to the rule? In verses 16 to 22, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for a bunch of loopholes that they had created that allowed them to break their promises. So it would go something like this. As long as you don't swear by the gold of the temple, you don't have to keep your promise. So you can say, I swear by the temple, but I didn't say I swore by the gold of the temple. It's fine. Or as long as you don't swear by the sacrifice of the altar, you don't have to keep your promise. It's kind of like a kid who says, I don't have to keep my promise because my fingers were crossed, right? What are the Pharisees doing? Uh, they're doing this because just like you and me, sometimes they like to believe that they were the, re the exception to the rule. Rather than responding to God's Word, the Pharisees wanted to create loopholes. Rather than turning from their sin, they wanted to justify themselves. And brother, sister, friend, could it be that many of us are doing that very thing right this very moment? He's not really talking about me. It's not something really I struggle with. Man, I hope so-and-so is listening. Because of this, Jesus calls them blind in verse 16, in verse 17, in ver and verse 19. In fact, you could say that the Pharisees are worse than a blind man because they think they can see. Jesus says they're blind fools. 
Once again, these words seem really harsh and vicious and cruel, but Jesus is holding up a mirror and inviting you and me to examine ourselves. So what about you? When God's word speaks against some sin in your life, are you looking for loopholes? I know I shouldn't date an unbeliever, but this time it's going to be different. Or, I know I should be more involved in church, but look how busy I am. Do you use your circumstances as an excuse? If you knew what I was dealing with, then you would understand why I said that, why I did that. If only my spouse would give me more attention, then I wouldn't be tempted to look elsewhere. Or do you use some other term to describe what the Bible calls sin? It's not pride. It's self-esteem. I'm not gossiping. I'm just venting. I'm a verbal processor. I'm not angry. I'm just frustrated, a little annoyed. My child isn't being disobedient. She's just tired, or that's just his personality. My problem isn't sin. It's a disorder that I cannot control. Listen, brother, sister, friend, as long as you view yourselves as the exception to the rule, God's Word will not penetrate your hard and calloused heart. As long as your inner attorney is constantly seeking to vindicate and justify you, you will not allow, you will stiff arm the Holy Spirit in His desire to bring you to conviction. So will you carefully examine yourself to see how you're acting as if you're the exception to the rule? So fifth question we need to ask ourselves Am I majoring on the minors? Am I majoring on the minors? In verses 23 to 24, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for majoring on the minors, for obsessing over minor details while avoiding what mattered most. The specific example that Jesus used to make his point was the practice of tithing. You see that word tithe in verse 23? It literally means tenth. Uh, so when a Christian, you probably have heard the term tithing before. It refers to giving a tenth of your income. It actually came from the Old Testament law where those that were not a part of the tribe of Levi, it was their job to take care of the temple. Everybody else, with the other 11 tribes, would give a tenth of their produce, of their crops, to support the work of the Levite to take care of the temple. That's where tithing comes from. Now, occasionally, a Christian will ask me if tithing is still required for Christians under the new covenant. Do we still have to tithe today? Here's my answer. Oh, no, Christian. You are free to give more. <laughs> if the Jewish people could give 10% of their income to celebrate their freedom from bondage to Egypt, should we who have been freed from bondage to Satan, sin, and death give less? Now, if you are not currently giving regularly to your local church, you're not giving anything. A tenth is a great place to start. 
But I think it's really kind of like training wheels. It's a great place to start, but when you see a 25-year-old man riding his bike with training wheels on it, there's something just a little bit wrong with that. There's a desire to push beyond that. And so I would encourage you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to ask yourself, how can I give more, give more cheerfully, give more sacrificially? Not because the church needs your money or the pastor needs your money, but because you need to learn how to be a giver. And by the way, since we're talking about it, my kids for the longest time had the misconception that the pastor just got a a cut out of the tithe every Sunday. And one of my kids would say, Dad, I don't want to put any money in the offering plate. You're just going to take it. So actually, don't do that at all. That might be what happens in some churches, but not at all at Pocosin Baptist Church. So my paycheck will not fluctuate at all based on what happens in the black boxes after the service, okay? Now, let's get back to Matthew 23. The Pharisees were big advocates of the tithe. In fact, in verse 23, Jesus says this, you guys are so meticulous about tithing, you go into the kitchen, open up the cupboard, get the spice rack, and measure out 10% of your spices to put in the offering plate. Imagine back in the days when we passed an offering plate pre-COVID, remember those days, some of you passed an offering plate? Imagine somebody dropping, you know, a teaspoon of cinnamon and cumin and Italian seasoning or whatever, just throwing that in the offering plate. That would be crazy. That's what these Pharisees are doing. Jesus is kind of making fun of them. You guys are so intent on tithing, and yet, at the same time, you're ignoring weightier things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. You're majoring on the minors. Yeah, tithing's important, but your heart is more important. As a result, Jesus says in verse 24, they're kind of like a guy who's straining his drink to make sure a gnat doesn't get in it. In the meantime, he's swallowing a camel. These words seem harsh and cruel, but Jesus in his kindness is showing you a mirror and inviting you to look and examine yourself, Christian. So let me ask you again, how about you? Are you majoring on the minors? Are you quick to judge others who have different convictions about modesty, entertainment, politics, or alcohol while ignoring the pride and the gossip in your own heart? Do you nag your spouse about petty annoyances while ignoring the bitterness that's festering in your heart towards them? In your family life, do you make time for soccer practice, homework, sports camp, and honors classes while ignoring family worship and consistent church involvement? What is more important to you, your political party winning elections or winning souls for Jesus? Will you carefully examine yourself, Christian, to see where you might be majoring on the minors? There's a sixth question we need to ask ourselves, and that is, am I ignoring my heart? In verses 25 to 28, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for ignoring their hearts. He said they they look great on the outside. They appear like they have it all together. They have a lot of religious knowledge, and they did a lot of religious things, but their hearts were cesspools of wickedness. They were filled with all manner of evil, like bitterness, pride, anger, lust, rebellion. Jesus says, you guys are like dirty dishes. 
You clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is filled with grime. You guys are like whitewashed tombs. The, the gravestone is so fancy and sparkly and shiny, but inside it's filled with bones. You guys focus on the outside and you ignore what's going on in your heart. So let me ask you again, dear brother, sister, friend, how about you? Are you focusing entirely on external things and ignoring the heart? Are you so consumed with religious activity that you never stop to think about your heart? One pastor warns us that the inner workings of your church can offer more than sufficient cover for a works-oriented person to take shelter from the gospel. Someone can think that they are doing great with God because of all the time they volunteer at church without ever meeting the Bible's criteria of loving their brother or sister. Let me ask you, Christian, are you so busy doing things for Jesus that you don't spend time with Jesus? How often are you reading your Bible? How often do you pray? How is your soul? And to the Christians, a part of Pocosin Baptist Church, how often do we talk to each other about our hearts? How often are our conversations merely superficial? What about the weather? What about the sports team? What about the vacation? What about this? What about that? How often do we ask one another, how is your soul? Will you carefully examine yourself to see if you're ignoring your heart? There's a seventh question we need to ask ourselves, and that is this. Am I deceiving myself? Am I deceiving myself? In verses 29 to 35, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for deceiving themselves. Uh, in Jesus' day, Jerusalem was littered with monuments for the Old Testament prophets, and, and the Pharisees were instrumental in building those monuments and decorating those monuments. And because of that, they had deceived themselves into thinking that they would have treated the prophets differently than their forefathers. So look at verse 30. They say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. But Jesus says they're just as guilty. In fact, in verses 34 to 35, Jesus accuses them of murdering the prophets. He says the blood of all the Old Testament saints, from Abel to Zechariah, from a to Z, from the first Old Testament saint to die to the last Old Testament saint to die. Jesus says, all of it is falling on your heads. You guys are deceiving yourselves. You think you're fine and you're not. What about you? Are you deceiving yourself? Do you think that because you sometimes do good things, you're a fundamentally good person. Have you looked into the mirror of God's word to see your sin? Have you forsaken it? Will you, Christian, carefully examine yourself to see if you're deceiving yourself? Now, in asking you to do that, I realize there's a bit of a conundrum here because you can deceive yourself into thinking that you're not deceiving yourself. 
You can say, I'm going to examine myself. Am I deceived? Nope, I'm not. And be deceived about that. So what do we do? Here's a suggestion. Go to a brother. Go to a sister. Go to someone that knows you very well. Maybe your spouse. Maybe some of your closest friends. And say, where do you see that I am self-deceived? That might be one of the most terrifying things that you'll ever do and one of the best things that you'll ever do. Because the thing about blind spots is we can't see them, right? Go to someone who loves Jesus, who loves you, and ask them, where do you see that I might be deceived? Well, finally, there's one more question that we need to ask ourselves, and we could say that this is the most important question. Number eight, will I repent? If you answered yes to all the first seven questions, I'm doing all of these things, and yet you answer yes to this question, there is grace for you. Look at verse 33. Jesus asked a crucial question. He says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? If everything that Jesus said about the Pharisees is true, and it is, then God cannot be a righteous judge and not punish them for their wickedness. Now, here's what we need to do. Don't listen to that and say, go get them, Jesus. Come on, yeah. You need to listen to that and ask the same question about you. How am I going to escape being sentenced to hell? Because if you are guilty of even one of these sins that the Pharisees have been guilty of, then you deserve the same punishment that they do. I told you earlier that Jesus' words in Matthew 23 are like a mirror. They're given to us so that we might carefully examine ourselves and see our sin. If you've been faithful to look in the mirror of Jesus' word and examine yourself, you've seen something ugly there today, haven't you? I know I have as I've worked through this text to prepare to preach this to you. So what do you do now? There's really only three things that you can do. One, you can look in the mirror and like a middle school boy, you can see that there's a big chunk of lettuce in your teeth, shrug and walk away. That's not a good idea. You can look at yourself in the law of God's word and you can see sin there and ugliness there and decay and rottenness there and just walk away. But what will await you is the same judgment that awaited the Pharisees. A second option is for you to grab that mirror and try to use it to clean yourself. You ever looked in the mirror and seen something stuck in your teeth and ripped the mirror off the wall and try to pick your teeth with a mirror? It's not a good idea. Why? Mirrors are great at revealing things. They're not really good at cleaning things. But there are some people who hear God's law in all of its harshness and ferocity, and they think, okay, the way to fix myself is doing the opposite of that. If you try to clean yourself up by doing the opposite of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, you're going to end up either very proud or very discouraged. It's not going to clean you. This mirror is not for cleaning. You look at your sin, you see your wickedness, and what do you do? You run to Jesus. 
That's exactly what he offers in verse 37. Listen to these sweet words. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus says to the people of the city, I'm ready to receive you. Just come to me, return to me, and I will restore you. Jesus says to you, wandering Christian, stubborn unbeliever, hypocrite, Jesus says, come to me, come to me, I'll restore you. How can Jesus restore us? Because unlike the Pharisees, Jesus has none of this sin. And yet Jesus, in just a few days, is going to go to the cross and pay the penalty for every single one of these sins committed by his people. And three days later, Jesus will rise from the dead, showing that he has defeated sin and Satan and death. That's how he can restore us. Well, Jesus concludes the chapter by condemning the city of Jerusalem for rejecting him. In verse 38, Jesus says their house, the temple, is going to be made desolate. The temple is going to be destroyed. We're going to talk more about that next week. In verse 36, Jesus says that this is going to happen before that generation passes away. Prophecy that was fulfilled in 70 AD, just a few decades after Jesus died and rose from the dead. In verse 39, Jesus says the city of Jerusalem will not see him again because at this point, his public ministry is over. Look at the rest of Matthew. Jesus will no more preach a public sermon. He will no more perform a public miracle. His words to the crowds are done. What's the lesson? Jesus sincerely offers to forgive any who come to him in repentance and faith, but that offer is not permanent. It's temporary. There is a time when you will not have another chance. And so, brother, sister, friend, our only hope is to run to Jesus. You don't have to face Jesus as a vicious bulldog. You can run to him as a little chick runs to her mother hen, and he will receive you under his arms. For some of you, that means running to Jesus for the first time. It means turning from your sins and trusting in Jesus alone as your Lord, your Savior, and treasure. It means making that public through baptism and through involvement in a local church like this one. If that's where you are today, would you talk to me or one of our pastors before you leave here today? If you're one of the elders at PBC, would you just hold up your hands for just a second? Keep it up for just a second. So if you're here and you want to talk to one of us, these are the pastors here. We're not the only ones that can talk to you, but we would love to talk to you if that's where you are today. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a Christian, for you that means running back to Jesus. You've wandered from him However many steps you've wandered from Jesus, there's only one step back. If you'll just confess, you tell him, you've examined yourself, we're going to examine ourselves for communion in just a moment. You confess where you've fallen short, and then you rejoice believing that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Would you bow with me as we pray together? Father, we thank you.